Hi, everyone. This is the first podcast of Angel Nears, the community of startup builders based in Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and our guest today is Leonid Igolnik, a software engineer with a career spanning 20 years and a number of different technology companies, which include two unicorns, Talio and Signal FX. He's also an advisor and an angel investor in numerous startups in the Bay Area. We're excited to have Leonid join us today to share his experiences on what it takes for a new product to win. Leonid, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here, Alec. Thanks. Thanks for the welcome. I think calling me an engineer is a bit of an overstatement at this stage of my career, uh, if, especially if you ask my own engineering teams. But uh, once I've started my career building software, hands on. It's, it's been a while since I wrote the code. Uh, any code for commercial applications, but uh, certainly been around some some products that were uh, fortunate enough to make a dent in their respective markets, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to share some of the insights that we've learned over the years. Well, it, it does say on LinkedIn that you have experience as an engineer, and, and as we all know, you can't lie on there, so I'm just going to stick with it. Um, but <laughs> But for the listeners, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself to get us started? So I've been fortunate enough to be at the right place at the right time uh, several times, although some of my friends uh, say that luck is when preparation uh, meets opportunity. Uh, started building enterprise software uh, in late 90s and started delivering it over the web browser, which was a thing at the time before this term was coined, uh, the term SaaS was coined. Mm-hmm. Uh, and has seen the industry evolve from, yeah, this will, this is like an experiment that will never go anywhere. Uh, to run a platform team at the second largest domain registrar in the world. And then uh, 15 years ago, when I moved to the Valley, joined a small HR software startup. The, the decade of 2000 to 2010 was uh, a bit of a revolution in HR software uh, mm-hmm. delivered online. Uh, the startup got acquired by Taleo, which was one of the four largest independent SaaS companies of its time. So it was us. So interestingly enough, another HR software company called SuccessFactors. Uh, and then uh, Salesforce.com, which was probably the most known example, started in '99, uh, and uh, and uh, Concur. Uh, three of those have since been acquired. Concur and Success Factors uh, was SAP, Taleo was, was Oracle, uh, and most uh, had few other stints uh, uh, since then, including uh, started doing angel investment uh, just to kind of diversify my perspective on, on, on the technology world right after the Taleo was acquired by Oracle and have been doing this uh, since 2012, so about eight years now, with various degrees of success, uh, some great exits, uh, some uh, great write-offs, uh, comes with the territory. I think for me as an engineer, the interesting part of this was um, the angel investment part of my journey was uh, for a while cheaper than a good MBA, and that has been tremendously helpful to broaden my horizons, because even as 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 a, as a professional, I started thinking about how I spend my time differently. And then, uh, most recently, I uh, joined a, a a company called Signal Effects in 2018. Uh, we were building a third generation monitoring uh, tools for applications and infrastructure, and the market was going through a fundamental changes uh, due to some of the developments and how software is being architected. Uh, had a great run uh, there with some great investors, and uh, the company recently exited to Splunk for a billion fifty. Uh, and uh, we had a great journey there as well, because um, like a lot of other enterprise companies, over time we had to shift from best of breed. We had to build our first second product. We had to scale. 
we we had to define some differentiated capabilities in a market that is already existing and in an existing market. Uh, and I guess that's one of the things we're going to be talking about today. Uh, if you want to win, uh, you have to be different. You have to be substantially different uh, and depending on the market, sometimes 10 times different uh, to change the behavior. Uh, and that's what we were doing at SignalFX as well. We are fortunate enough to have some really great customers, uh, uh, some brand names people will recognize companies like Stripe, Yelp, Atlassian, uh, and helping them uh, run their online operating uh, environments and uh, help them uh, scale their businesses. Yeah, well, it's, it's great to have you on. You have a wealth of experience and you've been at uh, several different companies. Uh, I guess my first question I'd like to ask for the young entrepreneurs out there, like what are your key learnings when it comes to building a new product? I think the most difficult thing about building a product in general, new or existing, is how do you prioritize your time and what what is that that you build? How do you decide what do you need to build to be successful? I remember a number of conversations with my uh, early in career engineers that were really concerned that we're going to run out of product requirements at some point. And I've never been in that situation where the product roadmap is not longer uh, than the ability of the engineering team by an order or two of magnitudes, right? So there's always stuff to build. So the question really becomes is, how do you take that limited capacity, uh, uh, which is your ability to develop product, right, Mm -hmm. and allocate it to the right things and and broadly right you have the buckets of uh you know keeping the lights on right we we if if it's not a new product it's an existing product and over time that bucket of keeping the lights on goes from zero to about 30 percent of your uh, investment on average uh and then how do you serve your existing customers and how do you open up new opportunities for yourself like in those three buckets and obviously the mix of those three buckets will change over the over the lifespan of a company, you obviously focusing on new and exciting things earlier on. Uh, over time, as you gain customers, you have to serve them uh, and and continue to broaden your product capabilities to open up opportunities uh, on the market so you can sell more software. Uh, and obviously, the third bucket of keeping the lights on continues to kind of increase as 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 you mature and as the company matures. So uh, the interesting parts for me is. In, in this never-ending long laundry list of things to build, how do you build the most impactful things and how do you build the things without which you cannot survive, right? And uh, I think developing a process and a methodology that allows you to focus on those, and some, some, some folks are lucky and some folks just stumble into those intuitively, uh, but one of the questions that I always wanted to answer over time is how do you do this reliably? What are some of the more repeatable, reliable methods of identifying those things? And uh, that's what I have seen separate the most successful companies probably from the less successful ones. Yes. Yeah, so you've talked about what it comes to, what it, what it takes to build a product. But really what I want to ask is like, what patterns have you seen between these companies um, that carry so do you have any examples of like through lines that you've seen at all of your companies or does every company have a different um, process that it needs to succeed? I think the processes are different and they have to be tailored to the nature of the company, the nature of the market, uh, the capability of the organization. But there are some common themes that emerge, right? 
being customer driven, being uh, allowing uh, customers to validate your assumptions uh, seems to be one of the common themes and, and iterating rapidly on those assumptions, especially if you're in the market that evolved uh, fairly rapidly as well. Like we, we, we live in, in a day and age where, uh, you know, uh, famously, I think it's Mark Benioff who said, every company is a software company, software is eating the world, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a tremendous amount of change in every single market for every single company uh, that are transforming themselves and whose customers are transforming uh, themselves as well. And therefore being uh, responsive to what the customer needs and making sure that you build exactly what the customer wants is, is one of those themes. And the question then becomes, how do you how do you find those things that the customers needs? Because quite often the, the customers will, will not tell you um, what they need in a way that you can act on it. Uh, the worst thing to do is to let your customers say, can you build a widget A or widget B for me, at least when it comes to software products. The more reliable way that I have seen um, uh, this type of uh, problems addressed across the companies I've been with and several others um, is repeatedly and reliably identifying, identifying the durable problems to solve. And it's very rare that the customer comes to you and tells you, here's my problem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to talk to you about solutions. Unfortunately, those solutions are not always uh, broadly applicable because the, the customer is thinking about their own use cases as opposed to the use cases of the entire market, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the famous uh, saying, uh, either truth or not, uh, attributed or misattributed to Henry Ford is if, if, if I was asking my customers what they need, I would build them a faster horse, not a car, right? Right. So the question then becomes, how do you identify those durable needs and the durable problems that you want to solve and then figure out the right solution that 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 creates this problem? And ideally, and again, car versus horse is a great example. How do you find those solutions that are 10 times better than the alternative? Because there's a lot of research out there that says that if you want to change um, somebody's behavior, right? you have to be 10 times better than the alternative. Because in general, we as humans are very difficult to change behaviors, right? For example, you know, one of the reasons New Year resolutions mostly fail. Uh, we say we will change our behavior, but we don't unless something really drags us in. And this nature of discovering solutions that are 10 times better uh, than the alternatives require a very deep, very intuitive understanding of the problem you're trying to solve. So how do you determine like what those most important features are that the customer needs and, and not necessarily what they want? And then to add on to that is, does it change throughout the life cycle of, of a company? Like, does that change as you go from a relatively new startup to a established uh, enterprise company? So I think it's less about uh, whether you're a startup or an established uh, company. It's probably more about whether you are playing in the new market or uh, an established market, right? There's this concept of sustaining innovation or disruptive innovation. Like maybe mm-hmm. let's use a couple examples. I would argue that when ride-sharing companies took off, right, Uber, Lyft, and others, mm-hmm. uh, this was disruptive innovation because they were solving the durable problem of getting me, the individual, from point A to point B uh, in, a, in a way that was 10 times more efficient in, in, in several examples. I tend to travel a lot, so... It's efficient in a way of me being in a foreign country, not having to hunt for the number to call the local cab company 
or try to explain to a cab driver where is that I am in the city that I've never been to before and where mm. to find and pick me up, right? So, right? so the disruption here is leveraging trends, which is the desire of people to move from point A to point B, uh, combined with uh, uh, kind of ubiquitous, ubiquitous penetration of uh, mobile devices with accurate GPS to create an experience that solves the durable problem of I need to get from point A to point B in a way that is more efficient, right? And that's one of the reasons, uh, you know, like I I don't think Uber wants they want me at least as, as a customer or Lyft wants they want uh, another customer are likely, uh, unlikely to lose to their direct competitors because when you compare them together, right, they're not necessarily 10 times better. And they now in the stage of uh, what I would call sustaining innovation, for example, uh, if you see they started with basic ride sharing, but then Uber Pool and Lyft Share, I think it's called, showed up. Some additional incremental services started to show up that further improved the product, but none of them, unless you have a very specific use case, convince you to switch between the products, right? Now that's a good example of sustaining or innovation, right? So I think um, the way companies need to think about what they do uh, and how they think about it, it's not about the size. Uh, it's more about the maturity of the market or what other external forces may drive a change in the market. Hmm. Uh, Signal Effects was a good example where uh, the way software was being architected, and since we're talking about engineering a bit, right, adoption of microservices, adoption of containers, adoption of Kubernetes over the last couple of years made applications completely different in their nature of how they deploy, how ephemeral they are, how they scale up and down compared to traditional enterprise software that was built 10, 15 years ago, and therefore you needed a new tool, right? That's an example of a disruptive innovation in an existing market because you needed a fundamentally different tool. And companies like SignalFX, Datadog, Honeycomb, and Stana were capitalizing on that trend, disrupting existing players on the market. Mm -hmm. So it's not really about the size, maybe to, to some desire. It's about the external, the, or what's going on in the market, and what do you have to do to be better than the alternative? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, uh, addressing the market is something I think uh, all entrepreneurs are aware of, but but to make it your focus, it, it, it's difficult, um, especially when the feedback is kind of it's hard to sift through the feedback from customers and maybe figure out like what they really need versus what they want. As a young entrepreneur, how would you approach designing the features of your product so that it has the best chance to succeed? Like a winning feature set. So for me, uh, thinking about the features and the capabilities of the offering has, has two categories understanding uh, what needs to be done and, and, and methodically uh, arriving to that understanding. And maybe we'll start with the end and then go to the beginning. Sure. Um, there's the great research that was done by Dr. Nariaki Kanod uh, of uh, one of the Japanese uh, universities that talks about customer satisfaction derived from how well the feature is implemented or what features exist in the product. And if you look at the research, and there's a great Wikipedia article on the subject, uh, you will see that uh, any capability of the product can be classified into one of um, three categories, right? You have your basic uh, expectations, and maybe let's use a car. Since most of us are familiar with cars as a good example, like your brakes on the car are typically basic expectations, right? Uh, when mm -hmm. they work well, 
you rarely uh, go to to your friends after buying a new car and saying, you know what, this 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 brakes that on on the car they just bought there that's like freaking amazing, right? Right. They're brakes. Now, when when they work, you you, you don't get too excited uh, by them, but when they stop working, you get very rapidly dissatisfied, right? Right. So, so it's kind of a must-have when, when you. When you build the product, you have to identify those basic expectations because without them, you're just not going to sell a car, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, then you have the uh, set of features that are called linear satisfiers, right? And those linear satisfiers or the satisfiers are, um, they, they increase with the customer satisfaction, but they do so linearly. So things like your, the range of Tesla, right? Like in the range of electric car, uh, the gas mileage. Uh, in some cases, for some people, the acceleration, perhaps, right? Uh, those would be considered um, uh, satisfiers, and you need to have just enough of them. But that's typically not why why customers get excited about uh, your product. And like, I'll give you an example: the the acceleration can be an exciter, which is the third category of features of which we'll talk about. That, like, when Tesla first released uh, some of their cars, right? The the road crazy start. mode. Well, no, no. The, 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 even the Model Three has this mode called uh, the ridiculous mode, or whatever they call it, where the acceleration is just out of the the roof. Like for some people, oh, it's, oh, it's like insane mode or something. Insane yeah, I heard mode. of it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. And then there's the third category of of features, uh, and I I describe them as things you didn't know you needed, right? And I, they're called the exciters. Mm. And the exciters uh, will, and this is where the innovation has to uh, to differ by time. Like many, many years ago, uh, in my first car, having uh, remote uh, control and power windows, power locks used to be exciters, right? The interesting things about exciters are like in, in Tesla, autopilot is probably an example of a good exciter today, right? Mm -hmm. Airbags or uh, used to be exciters. The interesting thing about exciters in every market that over time they become basic expectations, right? Mm, yeah. So you have to discover the exciters that are relevant to you, to your customers today. I, what is the what are the problems that you can solve for them uh, that you didn't know they didn't know they needed, but they will create that excitement. And maybe I'll use one other example from the car industry. Ford, I believe, was the first car company that created this capability that allowed you to approach your car, bump the rear bumper with your foot, and have the trunk open. Mm -hmm. I bet you a lot of money that no Ford driver or no car driver that drives a car went to Ford and says, you know what? If you build this, I will buy this, and this is freaking amazing, right? Right. So the question should be, and this is a good example of an exciter because it's a really useful feature when you live a grocery store with, with, with hands full of bags and you approach your car, right? Sure, or especially during a coronavirus outbreak. That's right. Or if you're getting a kid out of a stroller, right? And mm -hmm. you know, your, your hands are, are busy. So the question then becomes, uh, and if you build a new product is, how do you find those exciters, right? And how do you find those reliable, reliably so you can incorporate them into your product? Mm -hmm. And the only way I, I have seen work reliably is observing your end users uh, or your customers uh, mm -hmm. in what I call their natural habitat, right? You have to go and interview them. Now, if you, if you have a bit more resources, when I say interview them, you actually fly out with, with, with professional ethnographic researchers and you, you go visit them in their workplace and you understand how they... Uh, do their job every day. Uh, 
but you don't have to spend that much money. Uh, and this 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 approach of uh, ethnographic research for product definition was uh, pioneered by a gentleman by the name of Alan Cooper, coincidentally an author of uh, the book called The Inmates Running the Asylum, um, also running a, a consultancy here in the Bay Area called Cooper Design, and that's what they specialize on. They help larger customers because uh, research like that is fairly expensive. Um, discover those durable issues, right? And for example, to discover a durable issue of having to build the capability to open the trunk, you probably have to go and observe your customers. And when I say in their natural habitat, is you have to go to a parking lot of a grocery store and just watch them. You discover that there's a durable problem with opening a, a trunk. And maybe it's easier and more intuitive to discover for somebody because we all drive cars, or most of us do. Uh, but you can only do it by observing the customers in their natural habitat, right? Mm -hmm. And understanding what is that that they're trying to achieve. Uh, because asking them about this, like, it, it, it's pointless. You don't think about this as a capability of your car, right? Mm -hmm. I, I remember personally, again, going back to cars, I didn't think I needed a car without uh, that, that had a key that I didn't need to take out of my pocket. Absolutely didn't think I, I cared about that feature. I don't think I want a car without it now, right? Right. It's not totally necessary. Why would you think you need it? But it is incredibly convenient if you think about it. <laughs> yeah. uh, right. So, so, so going back to the question is how do you discover this, right? You have to go and interview your customers and you have to interview them uh, the right way. And the most, and the biggest mistake I've seen uh, both mature companies and young entrepreneurs um, try to interview their prospective customers is ask them questions about the future. And this go back, goes back to the conversation um, we had of customers don't change their behavior. And therefore asking them, uh, would, would, this, would, would you use a feature as a pointless question? Because if it sounds good, the answer is yes, right? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. will they? You never know. So the more useful questions to ask is to ask about what problems do they have today and how do they solve them today, which allows you to discover the problem, not necessarily the solution. So I'll give you an example. I was working with some of my colleagues on a service desk application that kind of gets deployed to call center. Um, and we were walking through a call center and in the call center, we've noticed one of the observations we made is some people had a piece of paper glued to their phone. Right? And we're like, well, what's this paper? What is this for? Oh, that's just a list of our VAP end users. If they call, we give them a better treatment. Why don't we why don't we have VAP end user capability in our software? So you can just flag the user VIP. Uh, right. And and this is this is the kind of kind of durable problem you can only discover by by being in a natural habitat. Hmm. The other kind of useful questions to ask. Is you know if you if you if you had a time or money to hire an assistant, what would you have your assistant do, right? Mm -hmm. Like what problem that you have today would you delegate to your assistant? And there's a there's a list that we can share, but those are the kind of questions you you want to ask or observe um, them in their natural habitat to discover their problems. And there's a maybe one one other area of this topic. There's a very famous story about how this observation by a company, design company called Luna Design, uh, caused Oral-B to redesign a toothbrush. Uh, those of you that are old enough probably remember the toothbrushes used to be those skinny, skinny little things that are very difficult to hold, right? 
and uh, Oral B at some point hired uh, Luna Design to go um, and see if they can redesign the brush. And uh, Luna observed the, the end users of toothbrushes, which we all use, uh, and realized that there are three primary ways people hold a toothbrush. Uh, there's a desk grip, which like you hold it in your entire fist, uh, and the two others which escape me right now. But the interesting thing is none of those uh, ways of, in the way people are normally holding the toothbrush allowed them to hold a, a skinny toothbrush comfortable. So the solution was pretty obvious, and we all know it now, and that's how most toothbrushes right now, those thick, relieved uh, with a you know with a with a nice grip toothbrushes that are much easier to hold in your hand. Uh, there's a funny story also that the toothbrush almost didn't launch because uh, uh, the, it wouldn't fit any of the toothbrush holders of its day. The holes were too too, too small, so they also had to go redesign a, a holder for that. But it's an example, and you think toothbrush like it's a two dollar item. How much money can you make? If I remember the numbers correctly, uh, Oral B's market share increased by like six, seven percent when they relaunched the toothbrush, like the famous Oral B toothbrush. And in that market, that was tens of millions of dollars of difference, just by be building a product that is ten times better, easier to use uh, for your customers. And I bet you any money that none of their customers will tell you, you know what, the problem with my toothbrush, it's too skinny, it's uncomfortable to handle. Uh, of course not. Okay, so it sounds like um, in order to choose the best features to focus on, it, it takes real um, feet on the ground and, and observation of your customer base to understand like the problems that they face and, and not necessarily asking them because you're not going to get the best answer. Asking them? Well, let's caveat that. Asking them, uh, but asking them about the problems, not about the solution. The job of the product company is to go find the best solution to the most durable problems you are facing across your customers, right? And 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 that's what separates, in my mind, the companies that win, right? Mm -hmm. Because they naturally tend to build services that generate excitement in their user base, and that excitement and consumer market uh, translate into something something called virality, right? Where you 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 want to go tell everybody about the thing that you just built but in in other products the exciters tend to tend to be the capabilities that make your customers referenceable and make them want to tell uh, all of their professional colleagues about this thing that they just bought right sometimes mm -hmm. for millions of dollars that just save them a lot of uh interesting um features now um obviously the the way you think about uh market validation in the consumer market and, and the enterprise market is probably different. And I won't speak about the consumer market much just because I haven't spent a lot of time there. Uh, in, but there are some commonalities. So measuring usage, measuring mm -hmm. engagement, understanding the feedback and having the feedback loop and ideally rapid feedback loop in things like beta software releases, early adopter programs. And getting feedback early from your target customer is important. And obviously, longer term, measuring the engagement with the feature, right? Uh, some of the more important, uh, more common techniques across both markets. And there are now products that are emerging that give you those types of user analytics. I think some of the older generations for mobile were things like Mixpanel, Heap, um, Launch Darkly, which allows you to do some basic A-B testing, which is also a more pro-, pro 
Uh, that type of experimentation in the consumer market is also a bit more prevalent, right? Because it's tougher to interview uh, your end users uh, than in a, in a well-defined B2B market. Uh, but there are, some of the techniques are fairly common. Yeah, I mean, I mean, some of the examples we've talked about, uh, such as the toothbrush, Oral-B, and Ford, they um, these are solutions for business-to-consumer products. But I think what you're saying is those techniques apply uh, in business-to-business markets, in uh, SaaS startups, across industries. All of these trends kind of continue. Absolutely. Not only they apply to defining the product, uh, certainly in a B2B market, they also apply in your ability to message better and sell the product better Mm -hmm. because it allows you through this research to develop this deeper understanding uh, of your customer and specifically of your end user. Because in a B2B in, uh, dynamic, there's there's the buyer mm-hmm. who is not always the end user of the product, right? There's the decision maker and the budget holder who is not always the decision, the end user of the product. Like, for example, CRM software is bought by VP of sale, mm-hmm. uh, but every single sales rep has to use it, right? Right. Uh, but what this level of research and this approach to feature discovery allows you to do is also to develop an intimate understanding of your customer, uh, which you can also later on use to translate into sales messaging. Right. And I'll give mm-hmm. you an example. I recently was uh, about helping uh, a legal tech company get off the ground, and uh, they're applying um, statistical models, natural language processing, and some uh, some other modern machine learning techniques uh, to allow attorneys to speed up contract negotiation or what's called redlining, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, through about 40 interviews that we've conducted with attorneys, VPs of sales, contract negotiations, and you need to have a fairly diverse set of uh, your interviewees uh, in your target group because you want to get a 360 picture, We've discovered a lot of useful and durable one-liners um, that we now use uh, in our sales messaging. Okay. For Let's example, uh, we've learned uh, like uh, in, in contract negotiation, uh, every company starts from a template contract, right? Mm-hmm. There's a standard starting point for every contract, uh, but every company over time has to go and evolve the standard contract as the market dynamics evolve, as norms evolve, as possibly new legal framework shows up. And we've learned uh, that today, most uh, in-house uh, corporate law teams uh, don't have any data that tells them which portions of the contract is the most contentious one in their negotiations? I, which ones do they have to tend to negotiate and always give up on, right? Which would be a logical place to go and uh, make it part of your template. We found that through Masonical conversation about the kind of problems they have with and how they think about working with their contract and working templates. And now the solution that we're pre- applying to the problem is tracking changes and starting to highlight almost like a heat map over the contract as, hey, listen, this clause of liability or this clause of your data privacy, you always tend to negotiate and you always tend to give up. And most of the time you give up to this language. Maybe to speed up the sales process, you should change your contract, right? Here's an example of discovering a durable problem and creating a solution that allows the customer to uh, do something. With, uh, with, with the data uh, the product inherently already has. Uh, and, you know, we, we, if we were asking our attorneys 
uh, that we were interviewing, like, what, what, what do you need from a product like ours? I don't think this would have come out as a, as a, as a feature that they need, right? Yeah, no. So when you're talking about market needs, I'm wondering, um, should startups focus on the exciters that you mentioned, or is there another approach? And, and to add on, how do you determine something's an exciter that's going to really blow up in the market that people really want? So, so I think, uh, number one, you have to fa- focus on the basic needs, right? If you don't satisfy the basic needs, uh, with, with obviously uh, exception to every rule, you're not going to sell a product, uh, mm-hmm. right? If you don't meet the basic security requirements uh, or the basic availability requirements, and they will differ market by market, right? For example, a monitoring system cannot have an uptime of three nines, right? That's like... If your monitoring system is not up, you you cannot monitor other things that have to have uptime. So uh, the basic need for monitoring system, for example, uh, you you don't take any maintenance windows. You cannot shut down the product for maintenance because when you do, your your customers are flying blind, right? Right. In other places, like when you're running a CRM, well, maybe it's okay to shut down CRM for an hour in the middle of the night when nobody uses it. Right. Uh, So you need to have your basic needs. Um. The the linear satisfiers that we talked about, like the the range of your car, are useful uh, sometimes to close uh, a certain type of deal because you may need to meet certain performance characteristics uh, of your of your product. But you should have just enough of them and no more than that to continue mm. to close business. Mm. And for me, the goal is to focus on the exciters. Right? If we talk about changing behaviors, is hard. And therefore, you have to be 10 times better than the alternative. It's the exciters that become, uh, make you 10 times better. Mm-hmm. And how do you find the, those exciters? Or how do you determine that they will be exciters? Uh, for me, the methodical process is you have to go and uh, understand the durable problems that the customers have today that are not solved by the alternative solutions, number one. Like an example of, uh, well, let's go back to cars again. Uh, the example of a durable problem being I need to open my trunk with both of my hands occupied. And then find a solution that solves that problem really, really well. What makes something a durable problem? Is it like a, a certain number of, of customers are facing this problem? How do you How do you decide or determine something's durable? There was a bit of a more art than science in this, but yes, your durable problems are typically common themes of things that people are not thinking about, but you're hearing them, this is a problem, this is what uh, prevents me from achieving my, uh, my goal every day, right? Um, and obviously not every, uh, every capability you're going to find in uh, your discovery will become that kind of uh, that exciter but every product that i've seen successful or every product demo that i've seen successful obviously uh, tends to have uh, a screen and uh, i once heard a, a talk about like designing a killer product demo that says hey there has to be a killer screen that's the screen after which when the buyer sees it uh, the buyer goes you know what that's it i want this product right those those killer screens or those killer features typically come out of those exciters 
which one will resonate with your market uh, has to be achieved through experimentation. So you build a thesis and you start validating it. And the cheapest way, by the way, to validate this is after you've done your interviewing, you don't write the software first. Uh, the, the cheapest way to build enterprise software is not to write any software, uh, but to start with mockups and prototypes. Hmm. Right. And you do some visual mockups and prototypes and you go back to some of the same people you've interviewed and you showed them uh, some of the problems that you view that you identified in your conversations with them. And then you show them some of the proposed solutions. And that's your that rapid validation step we, we were talking about uh, that is absolutely required to go and validate some of your own ideas or your interpretations of what would solve this problem back with your customers. Okay, so we've done a, a good job of talking about uh, determining the needs of the market and designing your product. Uh, and you've also mentioned be 10x times better than your competitor. So next, I'd like to talk about product adoption. Um, what do you think it, it takes to convince users to switch to your product, especially when you have competitors in your market? So I, I'll, I'll sound a bit like a broken record. Uh, you have to be 10 times better because we're all like, if you think about ah, your end users, if you think about your end users, right, they all yeah. have day, day jobs and lives and they have a particular job that they want to achieve by using your product. Mm -hmm. So your job is to convince them that they can achieve that job much faster and much easier with what you are offering them than any other alternatives. And by the way, other alternatives may be not using uh, any product at all, right? Mm. Like, right. Let's, let's think about like getting from point A to point B. I live in, in San Francisco, a reasonably dense, densely populated city. So my, my options for getting from point A to point B are a car, uh, uh, public transport. And by the way, unfortunately, in San Francisco, in that order of uh, preference, um, then you have your ride-sharing companies. And most recently, uh, we had this prevalence of uh, shareable bikes and electric scooters, right? We have a fairly mild climate. And all of those compete for the same opportunity to do the job. And the job I'm hiring all of those tools to do is to get me from point A to point B. Mm. Um, so there are times and there are cases where getting on the scooter is 10 times better uh, than getting an Uber, right? Uh, sure. Traffic. Like uh, rush hour traffic in certain portions of the city, it's much easier for me, especially if it's not raining, to get five, six, seven, eight, ten blocks uh, on a scooter versus trying to wait for an Uber that may be stuck in traffic for fifteen minutes. Yeah. So here's the ten times better capability of a scooter to convince me to spend money on that. And by the way, if you look at pricing, pricing of renting a scooter in the city and, and getting an Uber, they're not that far off on over a certain distance of time, right? Yeah. So here's an example where the durable problem or the, the job to be done is getting me from point A to point B and the solutions will differ based on the context. And therefore, again, understanding my context is important. Right. Rainy day versus a nice sunny day are two totally different situations in this case. That's right. Do I, do I want to be on the phone call uh, during this commute? And, you know, maybe I'm not in a rush and maybe... Um, you know, uh, I, I, I do want to be in my, and by the way, that's a, another good example. Um, I have chosen uh, to drive versus taking an Uber just because I need to have a private conversation while I'm on the road, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. So convincing your end users uh, that you are the best solution starts from empathy 
between you and your end user in my mind, and that empathy can only be developed through common understanding. In some markets, for some folks, it's much easier because uh, you can relate to yourself. And most uh, early stage companies start, start in markets where the founders can relate to a durable problem, right? They're naturally right. uh, kind of, they, they're scratching their own niche, as they say, right? And therefore, it's very easy for them to relate to their target end users. Obviously, it gets more difficult as you scale, you start hiring sales team, and you have to in, impart that wisdom on your customer facing crew. So for me, in my experience, and by no means I'm a go-to-market specialist, is, uh, but this empathy gets de- de- developed through a deep understanding of your customer first. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the discovery interviews and the, the research you do. And once you develop that uh, uh, empathy, you can uh, start uh, recommending solutions. And if your solutions are truly 10 times better, they're going to get adopted. Right. Of course. Yeah. Um, okay. So obviously we want to have great solutions to these kind of issues we see. Um, but when startups are young, they can have, they can face real challenges trying to enter the market. Uh, so for, for those young companies, like what techniques, um, and practices should they use to, to acquire their first group of users? Because not all companies um, start by addressing a problem. Like you mentioned, a, a lot of people will tinker and find a solution and then, and then build a business out of it. Um, some people yeah, don't we, have Yeah, we, we, we call it a pivot in Silicon Valley. Uh, that's a, that's a, it's a it's much more eloquent way of saying my initial idea didn't work and we, 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 we became, uh, uh, we moved to something else. Um. There are several ways I've seen uh, folks being successful. Number one, if uh, and it also depends on the founding team. Uh, if the founding team uh, is more experienced uh, and has an existing business network, uh, they um, uh, they tend to have some of their own connections that they can leverage, right, to find some of the early adopters. I just uh, became an investor in a company that was founded by four reasonably experienced enterprise software professionals, and some of the earlier customers uh, coming out of their existing networks, their former customers, the connections uh, they've built over the industry. Uh, so the question is, what is a what is what is a, a young founder to do? Right, you, I just got out of school, or I, I'm an engineer with few years of experience, and this is where Silicon Valley also shines um, because there is a lot of people. And for me, as somebody who lived in five different countries and worked professionally in three, Silicon Valley is different in one very important way concentration of talent and ability and, and openness of folks uh, to have conversations and helping each other, right? I, I've been in, in, in places in the world where, you know, people are very, very shy about the opening up their network or helping each other because they worry that either the idea will be stolen or they don't see a value in this. And value is this unique place where having a conversation and kind of serendipitously helping somebody with a connection you can make is the norm because I think we all realize that it, it creates the simplification network effect. So for younger founders or for early kind of first-time founders, one of the other reliable methods is uh, find the right money. So find the right investors or angel investors, uh, depending on the stage of the company, and use them as your network. Use their networks to plug you in. Uh, and you typically will see three sources of that network. You can uh, get it from your angel investors. You can get it from your uh, institutional investors. 
Um, some uh, firms like Andreessen Horowitz is a good example, have programs for their companies, like they run EBCs, executive briefing centers, to help connect the buyer and the company. Uh, and some companies do it by uh, taking advantage of programs uh, like accelerators, incubator programs, or hiring or retaining advisors, right? Mm. Uh, like an example of the legal tech company, the, the two founders uh, just came out of Stanford. They haven't worked professionally, didn't have to network. And in, in their case, most of the interviews uh, that we've done, and they sort some of their own target uh, kind of archetypes of users to interview, um, just came out of my own framework, uh, my own network uh, as a favor, right? Uh, it's always interesting to for somebody to get... Uh, with the right with the right messaging and the right approach, you know, half an hour to a forty five minute conversation about what they do uh, can be quite interesting, and um, that's uh, that's a very viable approach. And looking for those types of advisors uh, that can plug you as an entrepreneur uh, and can also plug you into what what I would call smart money. I.e., they come out of the space or they they understand the space in some way. Certainly didn't understand legal tech when I started working with the company, but I understood. B2B software, and can I've been on the end user part of contract redlining and uh, and negotiating as an executive, so I could at least relate to the problem, so we could zone in on kind of first order of magnitude of folks to talk to, uh, and that's uh, probably the most reliable approach, i.e., leveraging your network and uh, asking for a favor. Uh, sometimes cold uh, cold introductions in the valley, you know, cold pings on LinkedIn do work, but statistically speaking. A warm intro through with with the right context is much more useful. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and I think a lot of times we underrate our networks and and just how vast they can be. I mean, uh, one connection turns into several relatively quickly, and uh, you, you you never really know how close help can be um, without leveraging those networks. The help, at least in the valley, my experience is that the help is much closer. Uh, than a lot of people realize compared to a lot of other places. And, and this is the consistent theme I hear from people uh, like who came to the Valley recently. I've been here for 15 years. So I'm kind of gotten used to it. I I get shocked the other way around when I travel outside and I'm trying to make some connections. Uh, but this is the consistent theme I'm hearing. And that's what kind of very difficult to reproduce. And others have tried to reproduce this type of ecosystem. But it, it, it is incredibly difficult to rebuild elsewhere. That's really interesting. Um, just for the listener, do you want to tell us uh, where else you've worked um, outside of the Bay Area? So professionally, I worked in Israel. That was my first job. Uh, and then I lived in Toronto and Canada for a while. Uh, and uh, back in 05, uh, the proverbial is now uh, based on uh, uh, an HBO show uh, saying the winter was coming. And I came down to the Valley for a year. And I've been here for 15 now. So, uh, And some of the things that, that kept me here, it's not the high taxes and the crappy weather in San Francisco, uh, especially in the summer that kept me here, it's that unique concentration of money, talent, expertise, and this approach to openness uh, to create uh, a force multiplier. That's a really interesting takeaway. Um, Okay, so next, I would like to ask you a little bit about um, storytelling and and, and what the right way to do storytelling is for... um, for young entrepreneurs? Storytelling is, is such an, uh, in my, my opinion, such an undervalued and underrated uh, uh, skill or capability. Uh, uh, 
and and it, and, and in my mind, at the early stage of the comedy, it's incredibly important in, for two reasons. Number one, as an as an entrepreneur, you're trying to sell your product to your customers or your your, your end users, mm-hmm. and you also are trying to sell your company to an investor, right? Uh, effectively, fundraising is a sales job as well, mm. and you quite often have a very brief and very concentrated period of time to get your message across, right? The, the infamous elevator pitch, right? No right. slides, uh, two minutes to tell your story. If that, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I guess it. Uh, we don't have a lot of high rises here, but the ability to effectively deliver your message, once you discover the durable problems, you need to be able to articulate your understanding and that's the next skill that I recommend uh, every entrepreneur builds. I'll, I'll, I'll do a shameless plug here. I'm a member of this group called Sand Hill Angels. And uh, one of the services we run at Sand Hill Angels to the community of entrepreneurs is what's something we call Sand Hill Raw. Uh, it's, it's a pitch opportunity. And believe it or not, even though we're recording this episode in the middle of, of shelter-in-place order, uh, we still do uh, Sand Hill Raw and all of our normal agent activities, which do them virtually is an ability to go pitch your company for five minutes. Uh, no risk. It's not an investment uh, presentation. Uh, it's a presentation to get feedback. And you're pitching this five minutes, no slides, which is the most difficult uh, for a lot of entrepreneurs. Like there's no visual aids to tell your story. And that forces you to tell that story succinctly. And one of my favorite books, and I'm just going to cheat for a bit. I'm going to pull up uh, the model the book recommends. Uh, is on the subject. It's called Made to Stick. Made mm. to Stick is the book that uh, teaches you this, uh, what they call the success model. Hold on a second, just so I don't screw up all the acronyms. Uh, and they tell you, if you want to deliver your message, you, you have to do several things. It has to be simple, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uncomplicated. Uh, because quite often you have to tell it to somebody who is in a different state of mind or not have not thought about uh, the problem as deeply or uh, at the moment as you did. It has to be unexpected. There's a lot of uh, uh, physiological and psychological research uh, that tells you that you know unexpected stories uh, tend to be uh, more observed because our reptilian brain, once it sees a pattern it doesn't recognize, kind of interrupts your higher orders thinking um, and forces the, the 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 rest of your cognitive energy to go to understanding this message if something doesn't line up. So it has the message has to be unexpected in some way. And there are great examples of unexpected messages. Uh, there was this famous uh, ad console message about, um, and I think it went something like, did you know that the popcorn you're eating at the movie theater right now has... Uh, as much saturated fat as street steak dinners with fries and all the trimmings combined. Hmm. Numbers seem to be true, and it is like it, it gets your attention, right? Yeah. Now it's also uh, uh, successful as a message because it leverages a couple other elements of this model, and the other elements of success are being concrete, right? Ability to relate a, a bucket of popcorn to a steak is a very concrete example. It's not an abstract, you know, eat less popcorn there's, or there's too much saturated fat. There's not a lot of butter. You, it's, it's healthier for you not to, right? Mm-hmm. It makes it credible. Uh, be, and y- you have to be credible when it comes to your messaging. 
and some of the more common techniques for credibility is to leverage third-party independent sources. It's not to say, I think, right? It's to say, we have talked to blah, and here's the data we've discovered. Mm. You have to be emotional, right? Emotional stories tend to be um, uh, much easier for us to to uh, associate or attach to as humans. Uh, one of the techniques of pitching the story is this kind of day in life of your end user, right? Imagine Billy who is on call. It's middle of the night. He gets the page. What's the most important thing? What's the most important feature capability in that page? Billy wants to look at his phone and say, do I need to get out of bed or can this wait till this morning, right? That's a durable problem that you can solve by putting the right message on that push message of your phone. Mm. And then uh, uh, one of the also viable techniques, uh, humans in general love stories, right? We, you know, we, for millennia, we evolved by telling each other stories and passing knowledge verbally. So we kind of rewired for, for storytelling. And if you can deliver your message as a story, as a successful, reliable, logical story was the beginning uh, middle and the end with some excitement or with some unexpected expectations or uh, you, you're going to be much more successful. So once you've done all this research and you figured all of your exciters and basic expectations, spend uh, some time, it doesn't take a lot, uh, learn how to deliver the message well. And one of the most common mistakes I see when entrepreneurs try to talk about the product is this thing that also Made to Stick describes as a book uh, called The Curse of Knowledge. And the natural of the curse of knowledge is it's it's very difficult to explain something that you are an expert in to somebody who is not, because you would tend to gloss over some basic things that you assume that are naturally understood by the other party that are not. And that's how you get you lose them, right? I ran into this all the time in, in college. This was like university. This happens all the time. Yeah. Okay, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and and talk about how startups can compete and even outcompete uh, larger companies that come with significant resources. Um, how do you how do you enter a relatively competitive market as a small company? You know what, a lot of people, and I've worked at companies small and large, as large as one hundred twenty thousand companies. I think what people underestimate is uh, the value, the ability of a small company to, to execute the large company for two reasons. Number one, they naturally move slower because there are more decision makers, there's more entropy. Right. And quite frankly, early on uh, in some markets, uh, those problems are just not relevant uh, to bigger companies, right? I've been to big companies for whom like a $35 million a year business is just like, surrounding error on the budget somewhere it's not interesting and you know 35 million dollar a year of SaaS business it's probably in this day and age anywhere from half a billion to a billion uh, uh, value company depending on your rate of growth so there are certain markets where they just don't care uh, and you can find your niche and uh, if you if you catch the right wave right uh, you can disrupt them because if the markets are shifting, like if you if you're dealing with a disruptive innovation, right, where there's some fundamental shift happening in in the market, uh, uh, that's one way to compete with them. Uh, but you absolutely have to be execute and you have to be incredibly efficient. Uh, one of my CEOs used to say that uh, the right to innovate has to be earned, and uh, you have to both innovate and execute, right? And I think one of the Better examples of that is Nikola Tesla versus Edison, 
right? Mm. Tesla was this incredible inventor who was super innovative, pushed for AC versus DC, uh, and Edison knew how to execute. And once they combined forces at the end of the day, right, uh, they, they, they've succeeded even more. But being innovative without ability to execute is absolutely worthless, and ability to execute on the wrong things is also absolutely not, not helpful in the long run. So you mm-hmm. have to have something that innovates, and you have to have to execute and auto-execute a small company. I'll give you an example. At Taleo, in our mid-market, we were able, from a moment a lead would submit a lead form to a moment where we would uh, have a call and set up a demo and get a quote out, uh, be faster than a lot of our larger competitors or other competitors would get to the first demo. Because in our case, the team was organized for speed Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a differentiator. And uh, we didn't have a separate sales engineer and a salesperson and account manager and an SDR who need to be on the same fold, coordinated to get this done, right? So you out-execute those uh, companies um, by being uh, better at execution in some areas. Uh, You can also out-execute those companies by being more flexible early on and understanding your market better. Uh, What other ways to compete with them? Uh, I don't have anything else that comes to mind, but those, those are the two that I've seen that work well. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a great point. I think uh, one theme we've we've reached and, and talked about in this conversation is really understand your market. You have to be observing all the time in order to react. And, and uh, it's really important to sort of take measurement and take stock of, of what's going on around you, especially when you're uh, David fighting Goliath. Uh, having a product, maybe, maybe one other time, maybe okay. one other conclusion out of this discussion is having a product that sells itself, mm. right? Having a product that is so well-defined and so well-implemented and fits the durable problems that your your customers and your end users are facing, that it just sells. And it doesn't, by the way, and maybe that's a great example, doesn't necessarily mean you need better features. One of the, again, great examples in the mobile industry, right? And the smartphone industry is Apple versus uh, Apple ecosystem versus Android ecosystem. Uh, Apple has less capabilities and still able to command a lion's share of the profits of that industry by having a product that works, by having a product that meets the durable needs of of the end users, right? And therefore being able to command the premium on the price. Yeah. Yeah, they really do have a, have a tight grip on the market. Um, so next, I would like to ask you about challenges. Uh, and, and we're wrapping up here, so we're almost done. But I would, before we finish, I'd like to ask you where... Where do you think first-time entrepreneurs uh, typically struggle? Um, yeah, when it, when it comes to bringing a product to market. God, where do you begin? I think it will depend on the. I think it will depend uh, on the entrepreneur, their background, and the kind of team. Uh, maybe maybe the best answer, uh, the way the best way for me to answer this question is to uh, to tell you how I evaluate an investment pitch as an investor, right? Do you do I understand what the what what is the problem and have you well articulated the problem that you're solving? Can you tell stories? Exactly. Uh, can you tell me what the solution is and why is that the right solution to that problem? Can you help me understand how big is the market? Right? Is there ten people or hundred thousand people who will give you money? Can you help me understand your business model? How you're actually going to extract money out of the market? 
Uh, and then, uh, and this is an interesting one, do you have the team, and I'll talk about this concept of a team, to execute uh, and remove the obstacles that you need to remove in order to be successful with all four previous points that I've just shared with you? And when I talk about the team, obviously, when you start a company, uh, unless you you successful financially to the point where you need, don't need external capital and you can attract very experienced early set of founders, right? You typically have to cover some of your gaps, right? You may you may have deep product expertise, not deep go to market expertise. You may have some unique insight into a market because you've solved this problem at the big company before the rest of the market needed needed the solution, right? Uh, but uh, the other mistake uh, founders make is not under identifying uh, those blind spots and not closing them uh, or closing those gaps in their capabilities, uh, again, either with uh, other strategic investors, also known as smart money, or advisors, right, to demonstrate that they have all the capabilities that uh, they need to deliver on uh, their mission. Uh, the other most common theme that I've seen when it comes to to companies, uh, and 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 this happens more often when you have product founders, which it's a bit of a dichotomy because product founders long term tend tend to build better companies because at the end of the day, if you have a good product, then you do go around distribution. If you have a crappy product, no amount of distribution will 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 solve this, with some exceptions as as, as any other rule is a lot of founder pitch a product, not a business, or they think about their the company uh, solution and what they, what they build is a product. And product is incredibly important, but the question they forget to answer is, is there a business around it, right? Hmm. Can you turn this great, amazing product that you've just built that has those unique insights into something people will give you a check for? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, well, thanks. I mean, I think that's um, those are all really great points, uh, especially for young entrepreneurs to hear from an investor what what he's looking for um, when investing. All right. I guess to wrap up um, is in your experience. This is my last question. In your experience, is there one key factor that drives the success of a new product? I mean, some good uh, some good things you've already said include like building the right team. And and and, de and de determining if that product has the demand, uh, but but in your estimation um, and your experience, is there one key factor uh, driving the success of the product? I don't think there's one. I there that I've seen great products fail because they were too early, right? I think one of the great examples is uh, a company uh, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horvitz co-founded after uh, Mosaic, uh, LoudCloud which was Amazon Web Services, AWS before AWS. Right. It was a great product. It, it just wasn't time for it, right? Mm. So that's an example of a great solution, bad timing. Sometimes you have uh, crappy solutions, great timing, and they pick up because there are no alternatives, right? Right. So, so, so I don't think there is one factor to lead them all, but I think the fundamentals of having a great product set you up for a higher degree of success than any other uh, facts that I've seen that or any other factors that contribute to the company's success. 
All right. Uh, well, we're going to end it right there. Thank you so much, Leonid, for joining and sharing your thoughts. We hope to have you back soon. Same here. Thank you very much for having me.